بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم لیڈیز اینڈ جنٹلمین السلام علیکم اینڈ ویلکم ٹو دا تھرڈ ایپیسوڈ آف پاکستان جیو اسٹریٹجک ریویو وتھ یور ہوسٹ زکی خالد دس ایپیسوڈ کورز اسپیسیفک ڈیولپمنٹس ڈیورنگ دا ٹائم پیریڈ ٹوینٹی سیکنڈ ٹو ٹوینٹی ایٹھ ڈسمبر ٹو تھاؤزینڈ فارمل اناؤنسمنٹ آف اے چیف آف ڈیفینس اسٹاف پوسٹ بائی دی انڈین گورنمنٹ Before I go into the modalities which have been released by the Press Information Bureau in India, I'd just like to point out that uh, this development comes after exactly two decades, yes, 20 years. So it took 20 years for the government of India to formally and finally announce that a Chief of Defense Staff will be instituted. The process for establishing CDS, not directly, but through a broader perspective, came in the wake of India's surprise from what they perceived as Pakistan's aggression in the Kargil district of occupied Jammu and Kashmir. And uh, incidentally, uh, that committee was known as the Kargil Review Committee. The head of that committee was Dr. K. Subramaniam, uh, sorry, uh, Mr. K. Subramaniam, who was the father of India's current external affairs minister, Dr. Subramaniam Jayashankar, and the, the entire Subramaniam family is known to be, uh, known to possess a high caliber and IQ. They are, they have expertise in strategic planning, uh, especially, um, K. Subramaniam and his son Jay Shankar and his son Dhruva Jay Shankar and uh, K. Subramaniam, the chair of the Kargil Review Committee, he, was been, he has been revered as one of the foremost strategic thinkers in India apart from Abdul Kalam Azad. So he was appointed by the Indian government in July 1999 to review the events leading to the so-called Pakistani aggression in uh, Kargil and uh, he submitted, their, their committee submitted their report on 15th December 1999 and an classified version of that report was uh, tabled for discussion in uh, the Lok Sabha and Rajya Sabha in Feb 2000. So the Kargil Review Committee report revealed several deficiencies in India's security management system, particularly in areas such as intelligence, border management, and defense management. Uh, one of the key points or observations they made was that the original framework for management of the country's security was formulated by the British, which uh, had not been uh, indigenized or revamped since independence, i.e. 1947. What uh, was recommended was that in the wake of KRC, the Indian government set up a group of ministers, a GOM, in April 2000 to review the national security system in its entirety. So they wanted to take a comprehensive review about how to go about this problem and find solutions rather than just mere discussions. And they were also tasked with formulating specific proposals for implementation of recommendations in the Kargil Review Committee. The GOM, uh, the 
group of ministers submitted the report to the Indian government in February 2001 and uh, one of the important points in paras 6.4 and 5 is that the functioning of the existing chiefs of staff committee revealed serious weaknesses in its ability to provide single point military advice to the government and resolve substantive inter-service doctrinal planning policy and operational issues and in para 6.20 or 6.20 it says that i quote the currently envisaged institution of the cds is likely to be the first step in a series of structural reforms to be implemented incrementally as this institution is absorbed and evolves further refinements and changes in concepts and structures will follow unquote but it does mention in the report that the Indian MOD while briefing the committee said that decision on the institution of CDS will be taken after consultation with political parties and uh, there uh, it took a lot of time for political parties to reach a consensus on this and uh, some other interesting observations from that is that the defense secretary would function as the principal defense advisor or pda similar to the role to be performed by cds as the principal military advisor pma and both will enjoy an equivalent status in terms of their working relationship distinct from the warrant of precedence now if we talk about the warrant of precedence currently the a full four-star general in the Indian order of precedence ranks quite below a cabinet minister it's in the almost in the 12th position whereas the cabinet minister comes in the somewhat in the seventh position but anyways there is a there is a large gap when it comes to protocol and seniority and obviously the order of precedence decides that uh, we can see that there is uh, severe confusion regarding what actually constitutes or denotes a principal defense advisor and a principal military advisor now for people who are actually familiar with the technicalities of these distinct terms military functions are a part of defense functions and defense is a very broad terminology military forms a part of defense not the other way around so basically whoever looks into the defense aspects is responsible for capability development and uh, acquisitions so on and so forth and whoever is uh, responsible for military functioning is basically more focused into the functional and operational aspects of how those capabilities are to be employed so when we talk about the person who is actually in the know and feel of things who actually has uh, more responsibilities then it's it's the defense advisor or defense secretary and not the principal military advisor as the CDS is envisioned to be so anyways it's clear that uh, uh, the institution of a chief of defense staff is a process ongoing since 1999 and uh, exactly after 20 years uh, the Indian government has finally announced just imagine that 
proclaiming itself to be the world's largest democracy and having a vibrant uh, political system. It took 20 years for the Indian government machinery to finally uh, wrap up the discussions and announce a CDS. If we talk about the existing organizational structure of the Ministry of Defense, uh, there are basically four existing departments. Uh, they are the Department of Defense, the Department of Ex-Servicemen Welfare, the Department of Defense Production, and the Department of Defense Research and Development. Now, coming to the modalities, first of all, first and foremost, one of the key um, announcements in the uh, declaration of CDS is that uh, he will lead a new which means a fifth department within the Ministry of Defense known as the Department of Military Affairs. And it says that uh, the some of the issues which will be dealt by the Department of Military Affairs include uh, aspects related to Army, Navy and Air Force, integrated headquarters of the Ministry of Defense uh, with respect to service headquarters, the Territorial Army, Territorial Army is sort of a voluntary army like uh, we have Mujahid Force in Pakistan. Works relating to the Army, Navy and Air Force procurement exclusive to services except capital acquisitions. Which means that uh, uh, long term uh, perspective planning procurement for defense products will be still be decided by the Defense Acquisition Council and uh, not by the CDS. So one of the mandates, one of the interesting mandates which I found which the CDS will have is, I quote, facilitation of restructuring of military commands for optimal utilization of resources by bringing about jointness in operations including through establishment of joint theater commands. So let me just tell you a bit something about how the Indian government especially um, in the previous administration of Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been trying to reorganize and restructure the Indian Army and uh, theaterization is very much a, a part of their uh, ambition. In February 2017, this is a Modi 1.0 government, while chairing the Combined Commanders Conference, Narendra Modi tasked the Integrated Defense Staff, uh, that is the Defense Ministry, to initiate steps toward creating theater commands for the military. His objective was that uh, the process would be completed by end of 2017 and we know obviously that that didn't come about and it still took about two years for them to finally uh, announce the CDS. Now interestingly, the Indian Air Force had raised questions over the theaterization and integration of uh, commanders into a geographic orientation. So while the, um, and some other reports suggest that uh, while the Army and the Navy were very ambitious, primarily the Navy because uh, th uh, theaterization would m mostly benefit the Indian Navy um, as is well known, I'm just saying it for um, uh, added clarity that uh, a Navy is considered the foremost expeditionary force which can conduct overseas operations and even if you talk about amphibious operations then basically they are the ones who will carry out the platforms for taking um, uh, army for troops and equipment if 
operations are to be conducted uh, overseas. Um, the Air Force uh, logically stands to lose because um, they would be uh, all of their, they are not, um, they don't have the sway, they don't have the uh, uh, functional uh, capacities to direct the course of a war if and when that happens. And um, you just have to keep this in mind that uh, there still exists uh, lack of uh, agreement between the three services because of the Indian Air Force when it comes to uh, finalizing the concept of a theater command. So while I'm skeptical that anything like that would take place, in the same vein, I'd like to mention this uh, very interesting paper by Indian Army Brigadier Retired Dr. Rajiv Bhutani. I hope I'm taking the name correctly. Uh, he was, uh, he is known to be a China expert and uh, he was also a former, uh, he is also a former director of military operations in the uh, military operations directorate. So he is someone who has been there and done that. Uh, he was also part of the uh, and military diplomatic engagements with US. So he has a lot of insight and in one of his uh, very interesting articles which he uh, papers which he wrote for the Center for Joint Warfare Studies, Senjaos. It's titled Integrated Theater Commands for the Indian Armed Forces. Um, yeah, uh, a considerable portion of the paper is dedicated to highlighting the uh, issues which are arising from not having theater commands. So I, I leave it to you to read it later. And uh, But he proposes that he presents uh, a structure through which uh, capabilities could be combined so that uh, an integrated employment of land, air, uh, sea uh, and uh, cyber and space assets can be utilized. He actually gives the example not only of the US but also China, President Xi Jinping's reforms uh, in late end of 2015 which brought about a massive reorganization and restructuring of China, the PLA into what we see now. They have the Western Theater Command the Eastern Theater Command, Southern Theater Command, etc. And as also their strategic support force, which is responsible for information warfare and other capabilities. So um, it's not just about a geographic orientation, but also about uh, um, joint functionalities to avoid duplication or triplication in various instances and to uh, effectively utilize all available assets for the pursuit of common objectives rather than adhering to service specific requirements. Obviously you cannot uh, ex um, exterminate or remove uh, the respective land, air and sea forces altogether. That would, um, that's not something which uh, even developed countries have done. You will always require separate services. They all have their own uh, institutional cultures and their uh, service specific uh, mode of thinking. But uh, what uh, Dr. Brigadier Bhutani recommended was the following. So he says that uh, you need an integrated Western theater command facing Pakistan from the plains of Punjab through third desert of Rajasthan to run of Kutch in Gujarat, which should have all army and air force formations covering the area of responsibility of the existing Western, Southwestern and Southern commands. Similarly, he proposes an integrated Northern theater command facing Pakistan and China. So uh, he has suggested 
that uh, an integrated the northern command would not just focus uh, presently it's, uh, the indian army's northern command is only focused on pakistan he suggests that the integrated northern theater command should face pakistan and china both the so called two front war which uh, india is fearful of in the mountainous regions of uh, occupied jammu and kashmir and ladakh and then he suggests an integrated eastern theater command uh, exclusively facing china in the northeast and an integrated southern theater command having maritime fleets and air assets deployed for defense of western eastern and southern seaboards uh, which will include and subsume the existing andaman and nicobar command which is presently the only uh, tri service uh, theater command of the indian armed forces then he proposes um integrated aerospace command which would which, which would be responsible for air defense of the uh, the entire uh, indian landmass uh, and also for carrying out uh, uh, strategic air offensive operations so th this is you can obviously understand that uh, if uh, an army person is suggesting a retired army veteran is suggesting these developments and uh, this is uh, this is actually very logical if you look at it from the military planning perspective then uh, definitely it is the indian air force which stands to lose and then he presents and proposes an integrated logistics command which is responsible for organizing and coordinating movement of men and material from one theater to another including overseas operations at the theater level and um, he then goes into um the primary objective of what these integrated theater commands would do and uh, as i mentioned earlier he says that the uh, primary requirement of integrated theater commands is to to acquire expeditionary capability uh, so to in line with india's larger uh, ambitions to become a uh, recognizable power in the region the officer actually says that india has global aspirations and that is something which cannot be negated so anyways um this was some perspective into what the history and all of that uh, into the uh, cds is now we were talking about uh, the press release by the pib which mentions that uh, the cds will uh, has to um uh, uh, conduct planning to establish joint theater commands and they've actually included a slash now uh, that doesn't make a difference it's just you might call it a, a simple uh, uh written statement but uh, there's a difference an integrated theater command or a joint command is very uh, is different altogether Uh, if you have a theater command then obviously this implies that there is going to be a geographic orientation and expeditionary capabilities are involved but if you have only a joint command which um, that would uh, simply imply that in certain circumstances or levels of war you would have uh, different synergies uh, for that specific time frame and uh, the last uh, mandate of the dma specified in the press release is that to promote the use of indigenous equipment by the services so obviously uh, they are going to they are going to prioritize whatever uh, the drdo the defense research and development organization brings out 
or uh, any foreign company which comes under the uh, Make in India Defense Program uh, through transfer of technology and similar agreements. Uh, they, uh, the, what they want is that 51% uh, or more to be Indianized versions of uh, defense uh, equipment. And um, naturally the primary objective is to reduce costs and um, to remove any vulnerabilities which may arise from uh, you have certain issues when it comes to original equipment manufacturers of defense items. Anyways, that would um, that would become too technical a debate. And uh, now another important point which the it is mentioned here is that the CDS would function as the military advisor to the nuclear command authority. Presently, the, uh, the rough structure of India's nuclear command authority it is chaired by the Prime Minister of India. At the topmost level is the political council chaired by the PM himself and members include the Defence Minister which would be Rajnath Singh, the External Affairs Minister, the Finance Minister and the Home Minister. And once the political council has taken decisions they are passed down to the Chairman Chiefs of Staff Committee who at present is uh, one of the services chiefs on rotation and uh, presently it is uh, Bipin Rawat. Now when he goes out, whether or not he is appointed CDS, the next Chief of Staff Committee uh, would have been Karimbir Singh, but now that a CDS is constituted, it is expected that uh, he will replace the COSC. So in the existing setup, the political council shares its decisions to with the Chairman Chief of Staff Committee and he in turn forwards the operational directives to Commander-in-Chief of the Strategic Forces Command and India's SFC comprises the Army, Navy and the Air Force and the headship of SFC is also on a rotational tri-service basis. And now uh, in parallel to the Political Council and the Chief of Staff Committee is the Executive Council. Now the Executive Council is not part of the decision-making process but it is is involved in providing advice and their consultations and the Executive Council at present comprises of the National Security Advisor which would be Ajit Doval, uh, the Cabinet Secretary, the Services Chiefs and the Secretaries from the Home Department, the External Affairs Ministry, Defense Production, Dep Department of Atomic Energy, Finance, RAW, IB, the National Technical Research Organization, NTRO uh, and uh, but now uh, if we replace the Chairman Chief of Staff Committee with the CDS that still doesn't answer the question. The Executive Council does not, uh, the Executive Council which currently comprises of uh, Secretaries from Defense Production and uh, so will uh, now that uh, the CDS will be a principal military advisor. How much of an overlap will the military advice have when services chiefs are already in their individual capacity as part of the executive council? Will they be, will they remain in the executive council or will the three of them be asked to step aside and only 
the CDS will represent their combined interests. This is a very important question and this aspect has not been uh, mentioned in the press release because this has two very different implications as far as uh, Pakistan's uh, interests are concerned. If the services chiefs are will remain in the executive council and CDS will join them, then it would just only add to the existing setup and uh, the threat level or the decision making process will remain the same. But if the services chiefs are excluded and only CDS is there to represent them, then obviously you have one mind, one person who is going to uh, advocate the case on behalf of services and that would uh, really uh, bring about a huge difference to the benefit of Pakistan and China. So, because he would ultimately give the final advice on whether to the political leadership on whether or not uh, it is uh, the right thing to do to employ st strategic assets uh, when the need arises. And uh, now there are some really odd um, highlights in this press release as well. It says very clearly that uh, the CDS will not uh, be the supervisory or functional uh, or, or have functional oversight of the Army, Navy and Air Force chiefs. So uh, basically for me that uh, doesn't make any sense. If he is not someone who is going to have uh, at least a, a functional supervision of their uh, um, management, then um, that just leaves him powerless. He is like uh, just a ceremonial post. We already have a, a joint chief here in Pakistan and uh, you, basically it doesn't really matter because ultimately the, the slot of the chief of army staff is uh, considered more uh, important when it comes to the functional aspect and uh, although um, the Joint Chief has his own uh, statutory prerogative and influence but uh, if uh, they are not able to functionally guide talking about the Indian CDS if the Indian CDS is not able to functionally direct the services chiefs uh, in their uh, service affairs and which uh, then obviously you just have uh, just another sitting duck in the Ministry of Defense. And this also poses a very Im another important question. They have appointed a four-star general who is basically the first among equals on account of his seniority. But when we look at the perks and privileges and the salary and the overall authority, then he is actually not any uh, not in any privileged position as compared to the services chiefs. So the first among equals doesn't really bode well to exercise any authority when you have uh, rigid bureaucratic structures, the post-colonial bureaucratic structures in India and Pakistan, especially India where the civil bureaucracy has been known to exercise a lot of uh, influence to try to, uh, as we say, tame in the military. And uh, a few Indian uh, strategic commentators and military veterans, I was observing their tweets, uh, they expressed their concern that this is just simply clipping the wings of the um, CDS and just making him a, a useless person sitting in the uh, uh, MOD and the fact that his department is within the MOD uh, suggests that uh, 
his boss will still be the defense secretary but the indian government has made it clear that um, whoever the cds is he will be the ex officio secretary of the department and on equivalent terms with the defense secretary now uh, for me who someone who has studied the westminster model of uh, bureaucracy that doesn't make sense uh, if uh, how will you have an equivalent a person sitting within a certain department because when we talk strictly from an administrative and financial point of view then the uh, the budgeting required for department of military affairs that will obviously have to be approved by the defense minister through the defense secretary so how does that give independence or freedom for the cds to exercise his powers now when we when i talk about power it's not about operational or uh, Uh, ambitious power it's about the capability to function and exercise his authority as he pleases for uh, adequate reorganization restructuring and shuffling of responsibilities for long term gains and uh, it says here that uh, uh, a deadline has been given oh, and um, the cds has been given a 3 year deadline to bring about jointness in operation logistics transport training and support services including communications so these are just basically just has to uh, remove uh, uh, overlaps between the three services and try to integrate their assets but uh, this um, obviously it wouldn't be possible to complete it in 3 years but at least they have given a deadline i was just recently watching um just yesterday i watched an interview um uh, conducted by nitin gokhale with the former chief of integrated defense staff lieutenant general satish dua uh general dua is a very uh, renowned advocate of uh, jointness and uh, while commenting upon this uh, his views on cds uh, he appreciated the government's decision i found it to be um, i found it somewhat that he's trying to uh, you know trying to shower unnecessary praises on the political leadership but anyways that's his personal opinion and uh, he is someone who's been involved in all the affairs he said that uh, a four star cds is enough and it doesn't make sense to have uh, or appeal for a five star cds who would actually be fully uh, functionally superior to the three existing service chiefs because according to him this isn't practical and he also said that uh, developed countries which already had a five star cds they gradually downgraded that to four star because uh, that didn't have any rationale but uh, and but he did make an important observation very rightly because he has led headquarter integrated defense staff and he said that uh, the vice chief of defense staff should have been given the responsibility to head the depart proposed department of military affairs because uh if you're leading the dma that's going to be a day to day work you're going into your office you have these administrative issues financial issues to deal with so if it's a full time uh, it's a full time career it's a full time um, job involving nitty gritties and uh, plan approvals and budgeting and finance and this and that and that doesn't give time and general dua mentioned very uh, correctly that it doesn't give time for the cds to actually think in the long term uh, horizon perspective he's just going to be involved in day to day office affairs to make sure that his department is functioning correctly so that <laughs> if you just look at the uh, the other perspective if uh, he you know uh, 
uh, slips uh, in between then uh, the defense secretary will have all the reasons to uh, plead to the political government on uh, the uselessness of having a department of military affairs so and this is uh, this gives more of a, uh, a what can i say you can call, you can say that it's more of a administrative headache for the cds to lead the dma now i, I actually wonder what the vice chief of defense staff would actually do because uh, according to what the press release suggests uh, the cds is not going to sit in place of uh, the chief of integrated defense staff in the existing headquarter ids so if ids is continuing to remain in function separately first of all that's absolutely weird uh, logically the cds should be sitting in place of the chairman chief of staff committee and the according to what the functionality suggest and if you don't need overlaps then the chief of integrated defense staff the three star officer he should be made the vice chief of defense staff but uh, the press release suggests that uh, vcds will be appointed separately who will sit within the dma and mod and he won't be in the ids this needs to be looked into and um, obviously there are uh, completely different implications for pakistan when it comes to having a cds and vcds in the mod or being part of the headquarter ids now if uh, they are just part of uh, mod then we don't really have anything to be as concerned about because our primary focus would still be on uh, looking at whatever is coming out of the headquarter integrated defense staff and uh, but it is interesting that uh, uh, it is the uh, it means that the chief of integrated defense staff will be the one who will actually have functional and operational oversight of the uh, upcoming defense cyberspace and uh, uh, special operations agencies and um, it will not it uh, it places the cids the three star general uh, functionally superior to the CDFs who is just going to be an administrative uh, senior and uh, how much uh, whether or not the CDS has authority over IDS remains to be seen now uh, so this is uh, on my these are my comments on the CDS now coming to another important news um, Turkish journalist and geopolitical analyst um, Mehmet A. Kanji. I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Uh, Mehmood Kanji, maybe. He published a piece for Turkey's news agency Anadolu, and uh, he revealed that uh, Turkey and Libya signed uh, an MOU on delimitation of the maritime jurisdiction areas between both countries and he uh, equated that as a follow-up of decisions taken in the Qatar northern cyprus libya line in december and uh, <coughs> this is uh, this is something which uh, is uh, basically part of uh, turkey's uh, ambition to secure its uh, interests in the mediterranean sea primarily in the North African region through its uh, corridor 
and then uh, in uh, Libya and then to establish its foothold in the Indian Ocean and if you can look at the larger perspective the world's leading uh, trade connectivity in uh, the maritime it goes through from the Indian Ocean pa passing, passing through the Red Sea it goes to the Mediterranean Sea and uh, that's considered one of the uh, most important uh, global commercial uh, supply lines for trade and whoever it's basically said that whoever controls uh, you know um, the lifelines in the Mediterranean and the Red Sea he actually is the one who has the power and if you remember and uh, we've read in history how the Suez Canal was uh, a source of great strategic competition between uh, the British Empire and uh, other colonial powers and uh, Egypt right now sits at the mouth of these developments and uh, Libya being right next to Egypt provides an opportunity for Turkey to establish its uh, strategic depth and Turkey has already expanded its uh, foothold in northern Cyprus to try to uh, posture itself through um, drone maneuvers uh, to show off its strength to not only to its uh, competitors in Greece but uh, also to uh, countries such as the uh, UAE and uh, Saudi Arabia with whom Turkey has uh, strategic uh, differences and um, Mehmet Kanji in his uh, report he mentions that Turkey's large area of defense is formed at one end by the Mediterranean shield which covers the west and south of the island of Crete and at the other by the headquarters of the Turkey Qatar combined joint force command overlooking the Strait of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf at the southernmost end of this area is the Somali Turkish task force command in Mogadishu the capital of Somalia in the Indian Ocean to defend Turkey's strategic overseas interests um, Erdogan is plans to add a new link in Libya to the chain of defense presently consisting of the joint headquarters in Qatar the forward deployed cross-border bases in Iraq and Syria and the unmanned alien vehicles or drones deployed in Gechit Kale so according to Mehmet Kanji Turkey is building a dynamic line of defense from the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean and from Libya to Somalia by fielding its drones as well as warships all manufactured indigenously uh, to give you some context into uh, because when we hear these when we look at these analyses it seems that these things appeared out of nowhere and rationally that is not true and the other thing is but it is true that all of this is happening at a very fast pace just to give you an example in January 2018 so this was just the beginning of the previous year Turkey's National Security Council had finalized plans to deploy 60,000 Turkish soldiers overseas in four different bases according to a plan which uh, extends till 2022 um, Turkey already maintains 3,000 troops near the Red Sea 200 soldiers in Somalia and a military base in Sudan's Suakin Island capable of holding 20,000 personnel for five years and just to give you a preview about uh, what uh, its overseas presence is the Turkey Qatar Joint Force Command which was inaugurated last year will be named Khalid al-Walid base and to serve for 
as Erdogan puts it, I quote, stability in the Gulf, and this is obviously the Persian or Arab Gulf, housing a mechanized battalion battle group comprising 300 Turkish soldiers and special forces commandos. And uh, the Somali Turkish Task Force Command was opened in 2017 earlier by then Chief of General Staff General Hulusi Akar, who visited Libya and Sudan for talks after his visit to Somalia. So if you can make sense of it, um, Turkey started off from Somalia, then visited Libya and Sudan, and then it expanded to northern Cyprus in the Gichitkale Air Base near Lefkoniko. And then it went to near just outside of Doha to establish its uh, Turkey Qatar Joint Force Command. Turkey's unique regional strategic paradigm comprises of enhanced relations with Qatar as its foothold in the Indian Ocean and in the Gulf region particularly. For East Africa, Turkey's bets are placed on Somalia and Sudan and Libya is covering the Middle East and North Africa region and Cyprus is naturally the foothold for presence in the Mediterranean and the long-term interests for Turkey are not just security centric they have, they have their economic interests their through energy security they have their uh, commercial interests they wish to expand their the defense industrial base for their national organizations uh, which manufacture weapons arms and equipment and also turkey has been involved since long through its soft power strategies through its uh, um, promotion of turkish language uh, and other uh, cultural initiatives in africa so um, when you talk about the larger Indo-US Pacific strategy, India's own ambitions in the Indian Ocean region and uh, Turkey's uh, tri-continental strategy to link together Asia, Africa and uh, Europe because basically uh, if you uh, have a network of influence spanning from the Indian Ocean in the east to the Mediterranean in the west you are essentially uh, having a sort of control over uh, three different continents but this isn't the uh, this isn't control in the traditional sense but it is an exhibition of uh, posturing of an emerging power and turkey has expeditionary ambitions since long it is going to be an important country to be reckoned with in the mediterranean and uh, in view of Turkey's own uh, partnership with China to provide an, uh, a flow into the Mediterranean, it forms a very important crucible for the Chinese leadership to establish its presence in uh, to the north of Africa, where traditionally uh, it is perceived that uh, uh, Atlantic powers have their monopoly. And so, um, if I look at it from a Pakistani perspective, a growing Turkish presence in the Gulf would obviously create a buffer and a safe zone for Pakistan, but it also places us in a strategic fix because we don't really know whether um, 
our relations with Saudi Arabia and uh, the threats we face from an increasingly assertive India in the Western Indian Ocean. Presently, our only best bet is East Africa and the um, we have um, the uh, uh, China at uh, Djibouti, but uh, that's not a significant presence over there. But if Turkey comes into the fold and uh, Turkey establishes its own buffer, then we might have to consider uh, revising our strategic priorities and our existing alignment in which all our bets are placed on our traditional Gulf allies. Um, we are not sure our own allies in Bahrain etc they are there so far they're okay with having an Indian presence in the Naval Central Command of the US and giving space to India to operate aggressively in the Western Indian Ocean so if Qatar comes about or uh, Turkey comes about then obviously it, it has its own interest. It won't be in competition with India. It's, that's not the objective it has. But to assert itself, it might cause a, uh, problems with the confrontation between the Turkish uh, Qatar bloc at the one end and uh, a Gulf uh, US bloc on the other. So apart from the already existing uh, headache we have with uh, India stepping up in the Western Indian Ocean, this will pose a lot of consequences as well as some uh, uh, indications of any future uh, realignment considerations. So, uh, so Turkey, uh, we, uh, this is uh, this is going at a very broad level because it doesn't matter when the when or how the leadership will change in Turkey, but uh, their national strategy, their grand strategy actually, is to maintain their own uh, network from the Mediterranean and just below Europe till the Indian Ocean. So let's see how uh, India perceives that as well. Recently in uh, Muscat, uh, India's external affairs minister, Dr. Subramaniam Jayashankar held meetings with his Omani counterpart and also uh, the both of them had lunch with uh, visiting Iranian foreign minister Jawad Zarif. But uh, from the bilateral aspect, India and Oman recently signed a maritime transport agreement. To give you some context, um, the f relationships which in India already has the uh, agreements with Oman are as follows. In 2005 and uh, 2016, uh, India and Oman signed an MOU between the Ministry of Defense on military cooperation. So that began in 2005 and uh, in 2016, a protocol was signed between Indian and Omani Air Forces on Flight Safety Information Exchange. Also, an MOU between Coast Guards in the field of marine crime prevention at sea and an MOU to cooperate on maritime issues. Um, Iran, Oman and India, when we talk about uh, the trilateral context, they are part of the Ashgabat Agreement which connects the Indian Ocean with Eurasian mainland. The Ashgabat Agreement is a multimodal transport agreement which involves the governments of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Iran, Pakistan, India and Oman to create an international transport and transit corridor facilitating transportation of goods between Central Asia and the Persian Gulf. Iran joined the Ashgabat Agreement in 2011. Pakistan signed it in 2016 and India was formally inducted just last year in 2018. 
so we pakistan has been there in 2016 but it is india which is trying to make the most out of this agreement uh, some other context in february last year feb 2018 modi visited oman and signed an mou to use the dukum port of oman for strategic purposes uh, dukum port is just uh, 40 minutes away from uh, air 40 minutes of, of flight distance from mumbai um, and um the indian government naturally fears that chinese navy has increased its activities in the western part of the indian ocean um as also its military presence in djibouti in east africa so india needs a, a credible presence in the gulf region uh, where it its air force and naval forces can uh, from where its air and naval forces can operate from if the need arises and it is the dukum port in oman which is already being uh, propped up for that purpose um, earlier in july this year july 2019 in his meeting with the minister of industry mine and trade raza rehmani uh, oman's transport minister ahmed bin mohammed al fatisi he expressed his country's willingness to invest in chabahar port so while india and oman have already improved their bilateral relations through defense and uh, security cooperation oman for its end known to be a very um, non aligned country in the gulf as compared to its other powerful gcc neighbors it has uh, cordial relations with iran and it it has expressed its interest in july this year to invest in chabahar now if this takes about Uh, the trilateral will develop into a full-fledged relationship involving security of uh, shared interests around the strait of hormuz in the energy and security spheres and um, india only acts as a complement because it is india which uh, strengthens the any or all sort of relationships between developing between iran and oman so it plays to the three of their benefit and afghanistan being already a part of it um this is uh, going to just add to the concerns and it remains to be seen how uh, saudi arabia and the uae view india and oman's growing willingness to cooperate with iran in chabahar the us has just given uh, written assurance that uh, they will allow banks to fund projects in chabahar which is also unprecedented and uh, let's see how the iran India and Oman trilateral is uh, perceived by the Gulf establishment because that's going to decide how Pakistan will at least on the face of it how Pakistan will have to orient itself and China is definitely watching this with uh, interest China hasn't made any sort of uh, significant overtures to Oman and uh, its bets are still with Qatar so will Qatar be part of Uh, the non-aligned network or will it be part of the turkey china uh, network through bri to counter this uh, perceived ingress uh, we'll have to wait and watch uh, for pakistan this uh, raises a lot of questions because uh, one of the largest uh, ethnic communities in oman are the balochis and if india has a significant uh, presence in oman this could have uh, implications for uh, uh ethnic uh, ethnic uh, 
conflicts within Pakistan is uh, well in Balochistan. Uh, despite having uh, a sizable amount of Balochis in Iran, uh, Pakistan has not been able to utilize its uh, in interests well through pro-Pakistan favoritism in Omani circles and they are clearly very uh, very much trying to make up for the loss of Gawadar by investing in Chabahar and giving India the space to operate in the Arabian Sea. A brief note on the Sino-US soft power competition in Djibouti. Uh, I've mentioned in my previous uh, podcasts and writings also that Djibouti in East Africa is uh, a country where US, Japan, China and uh, probably even Russia tried to set up its base there as well. It wasn't allowed. Uh, US, China and Japan have their military presence and bases in Djibouti just overlooking the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, soft power competition is high. On the 29th of November, uh, PLA support base in Djibouti announced that it would cooperate with uh, the country's uh, Djibouti's Ministry of Health to conduct a special medical service operation for diagnosis treatment of cataract patients. And um, China has been there since August 2017. Uh, they're uh, trying to promote a soft image by providing medical facilities and other cultural initiatives for people over there. Uh, to uh, garner further support uh, and similarly so that was in the end of November and uh, just uh, in the last week of this month on 20th of December uh, the US government announced it was delivering 54 new Humvees to the Djibouti military as part of its 31 million dollar push to train and equip an elite infantry battalion uh, according to what uh, research says and what the report mentions, uh, the U.S. is the second largest employer after Djibouti's own government. So while uh, both are in competition, obviously um, um, the U.S. is trying to use military diplomacy through provision of defense equipment to uh, suck up to the Djibouti government. And China is focused more on humanitarian assistance through medical facilities, etc. As far as Africa is concerned, uh, the Africans always have a very uh, precautious attitude to whichever outside power is trying to cozy up to them. And um, if you look at East Africa, they have a history of uh, and natural disasters and other um, emergencies. And for them, um, I think when it comes to the process in which you have to win hearts and minds of people, um, the Chinese initiative seems more uh, humanly and friendly as compared to just uh, providing incentives to the Djibouti military establishment. Now, because China is uh, through its soft power is reaching directly and impacting the lives of ordinary Djibouti citizens, whereas the US is focused more on trying to strengthen its government. and in the long run, obviously, we'll have to see how uh, which country takes the lead, whether it is China or it's uh, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. base in Djibouti, Camp Limonier, has a presence of no, no more than uh, 4,000 people. And uh, in that portion in the Horn of Africa, it's uh, important for to decide the course of uh, future great power competition in the Western Indian Ocean region. This is something which many have uh, predicted beforehand. So as for now, 
China has uh, uh, cleverly employed a strategy to uh, win the hearts of people in uh, Djibouti and it remains to be seen whether the US is going to uh, repeat the same or it will continue to focus on the security aspects of cooperation. Uh, in the long run it will definitely not benefit from such overtures. Coming to the Afghan elections, uh, a lot of analysts and mainstream media commentators have already uh, discussed and debated the credibility of the elections in which uh, apparently President Ashraf Ghani was uh, re-elected. Uh, there was an interesting news item, Rana Think Tank of Afghanistan uh, held discussions with the ex-governor of Nimruz, Amir Muhammad Akhundzada. He said that Afghanistan has once again been, is once again facing an electoral deadlock due to what he calls, I quote, systematic frauds, unquote. Um, he mentioned that scrapping of 300,000 suspicious biometric votes is crucial to stop Afghanistan from crisis. And he says that these um, 300,000 votes were casted illegally. An international affairs analyst, uh, Abdul Shakur Salangi, he said that um, all ethnic tribes across Afghanistan should have their representatives in the future government, which is lacking at the moment. And obviously, being a, a very sensitive country when it comes to ethnic strife, if there is no, no adequate representation by any specific ethnic community, then that is going to pose a problems for the existing government as well. Um, Chief Executive Abdullah Abdullah, who had almost 39%, claimed that he uh, gathered a significant majority of the vote, but he accused Ghani of manipulating the polls and uh, stuffed thousands of ballots for his tallied vote. This is what he said. In this context, uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's invitation to Ghani to visit India and um, he said that it is his second home. Um, it is It was India which was very much uh, uh, insisting that uh, Kabul should hold uh, fresh elections and, and the US had been supportive of that. Uh, the, f the fact that India has not uh, chosen to remain silent but uh, quickly and readily accepted uh, Ghani's apparent or so-called victory in the elections which are highly disputed uh, and uh, not appreciated at all by uh, CEO Abdullah Abdullah uh, is going to pose problems for New Delhi but it remains to be seen that if New Delhi is very confident about uh, Ghani continuing in office it still adds to the problems uh, the peace talks with the Taliban are underway and uh, the little, the very little political capital which Ghani might have had uh, will be lost in the eyes of his own people and especially the electoral constituents of Abdullah Abdullah and his voters who will, uh, who are most likely to back out and uh, leave uh, Ghani alone in trying to shout so-called exclusion from peace talks. Now that the legitimacy is gone and the credibility of the elections are highly disputed it is only natural that uh, um, a fresh round of elections be conducted but uh, India has, uh, it seems that India was uh, placing its bets on Ghani all along rather than taking a neutral view on this and uh, how the Afghan public views this uh, will impact the future course of uh, relations between uh, India and Afghanistan and not uh, Ghani's so-called resource value for New Delhi. 
let's see what the uh, Abdullah has uh, decides to in the course of action he decides to take whether he will stick around in the so-called national unity government or he'll um, uh, go out and um, try to push for greater uh, to, for the speeding up of the peace talks that's what remains to be seen Allah Hafiz